am not a liar, but I full on lie. Shut your mouth. What? What? So good. We are not amused. It was like Romy Michelle's like interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, the Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calissa Mollis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season three, episode 18, Riddled. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section... Alpha is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, and... The Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. This episode, Riddled, was written by Christian Taylor and directed by Tim Andrew. In it, the pack searches for a missing Styles. Lydia thinks he might be at a mental institution called Eichenhaus. Derek teaches Scott about chemo signals and works with Kira to understand her connection to the Nogitsune. Isaac checks on Allison, and the two of them discover mysterious messages on her phone. When Raphael and Melissa find Styles, he undergoes testing at the hospital and, to Stalinsky's horror, shows signs of the illness that killed his mother. The monster inside Styles comes to the surface and faces Noshiko. Our favorite quote of the week comes from Derek when he says, My family didn't just live in Beacon Hills, they protected it. This town needs someone to protect it. Someone like you. I'm guessing it's Scotty's talking to. It is. Nice. Our honorable mention is a little exchange between Derek and Kira. Kira says, I don't know if I should go in. You're going to tell Scott that Barrow might have used Foxfire, created by me, to jumpstart the Nagitsune's power inside Styles. Derek says, yeah. Kira replies, basically, that I helped a dark spirit take control of his best friend. Derek says, you should probably wait here. I'm very happy for Derek that he is featured in both of our favorite quotes for this episode. He's not typically the one who ends up there because compared to everyone else and in particular styles, he can be a bit terse, let's say. Yes. Yes. But when he's on, he's on. Fun fact before we start. In the original draft of Riddled, the title wasn't Riddled, but Resonance. Anything to say about that? I do not remember that. So interesting. Well, I did the whole read through for this one of the original draft and there were no riddles. So it would have been strange for it to have been called riddled considering we didn't have any of those. So I guess Mm. that's why it was called something else. Interesting. Really? I wonder at what point in the writing process riddles became a 
core part of the episode. So you're saying in the original script, like when Styles is down in the the unknown basement when they think he's at Iken, and then Agitsune is in there kind of doing all his creepy crawly stuff. Instead of doing riddles, he's just going, resonance, resonance, resonance. resonance. Oh my God. Uh, you know Aaron could make that interesting as hell so that's not exactly what happened but that could have been fun the episode begins with Scott getting a call from Styles in the middle of the night uh no pictures of Styles pop up that's not fair it should definitely be the picture of him with fries coming out of his mouth from the tell in season one that would be adorable in the original script, the scene opens with a text from Raphael saying, it's time we talk before Styles calls Scott. It makes sense that they changed this. First of all, I don't know about other viewers, but I didn't have that strong of an investment in the Raphael-Scott relationship. And second of all, if you're going to start on something, you want to start on something really interesting. Team Wolf episodes usually start with a bang. Yeah. And your estranged dad saying it's time we talk just doesn't quite feel like a bang, does it? It does not. If anything can be said, I think about Teen Wolf and many great things can be said about Teen Wolf. Our teasers were always fun. We're always scary. We're always super interesting and exciting. So we we knew how to start episodes where it's just like you hit the ground running and you don't know what's happening, but you're going to get there and it's going to be great. Styles doesn't know where he is or how he got there. He thinks he was sleepwalking. It's too dark to see, so he can't really give Scott a description of where he's found himself. They should really have the Find My Friends function turned on. Oh, they absolutely should. My yes. God. But before Scott can learn anything else, the call cuts out. At least you can see a pick of styles on Scott's phone screen when the call ends. It takes a few tries, but Scott gets back on the line with Styles, who adds that he can't move because his leg is stuck and bleeding. It's so dark and sparse. So the loft? <laughs> is Derek there? Put Derek on right now. But really, he should call Derek. There's also a strong smell that's making Styles' eyes water. Scott's first instinct is to call Stolinski, but Styles makes him promise not to because Stolinski already worries about him too much. Styles insists that Scott can find him without Stolinski's help. Even though you didn't really look for me last time. Burn. Styles says he has to turn the phone off and call back. Scott protests, but it's too late. Oh, I really like the disorienting track around shots of Scott in the scene. Yeah, they look great. Scott shouts for Isaac to wake up. Acting like they wouldn't be sleeping in the same room. Right? He should have just sat up in bed and then Allison stirs and is like, what's going on? And Scott's like, I need you both. That would have been great. Yeah. In the original script, Isaac asks, why is this still happening to him? And Scott replies, I don't know. Interesting. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Because... Yeah, but I guess, I guess it does make sense, though, right? Because there was the episode where it seemed like everyone's symptoms were being resolved. Yep. Yeah, and the, first, the second one. It's, yeah. yeah, so I think it's probably Isaac's asking that because he knows intimately that Scott and Allison have not had continued symptoms. Yeah, they talk about it at night before they go to bed. Exactly. And they're giant California king. <laughs> Instead of sleeping, Lydia is at the high school working on a portrait of Aiden. Now, in the original script, this takes place at the edge of the woods in Lydia's car. Aiden had asked her to meet after she had been dodging his calls. So in that exchange, Lydia says, Those ninja things nearly stopped my heart. I can't heal like the rest of you. My mother thought I had the flu and wouldn't let me out. He says, I would have brought you chicken soup. Lydia said, I don't want chicken soup from you. And then Aiden says, then what do you want, Lydia? 
I think that's very interesting because they didn't talk about how it affected a non-supernatural. Lydia is a supernatural, but she's not supernatural like the rest of them with like healing abilities. She's not a shifter. Yeah. So we didn't really get any more comments about what it was like for her. Yeah. No, that would have been interesting to to know that there was an actual physical reaction to this that she didn't just bounce back from. That that would have been cool. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about security at the school because the homicide rate has seen to it that no one will work the night shift. That tracks. R.I.P. Slappy. Aiden says this isn't what he thought she meant when she said she wanted him to be her model. I thought you meant like an airplane or something. That is such a Will joke. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I'm hilarious. To punctuate his point, Aiden takes off his shirt. Lydia jokes that nude modeling is usually done without pants, only to get his pants thrown at her face. Oh my god, her eyes got so big right there. It's great. She truly didn't seem to anticipate that, which is interesting. Feels like she should have. Yeah. It seemed like a dare. But before things can escalate, Lydia starts hearing something. Instead of music coming from a nearby speaker, she hears Styles' voice asking her to come find him. In the original script, after hearing his voice on the radio, the following exchange happens between Lydia and Aiden. Lydia says, you coming or not? Aiden says, so now you need me, do you? Admit that and I'll come with you. Lydia says, I don't need anybody. You coming with me or would you prefer to put that pretty bike between your legs? Aiden says to himself, you need me. After Lydia hears Styles on the speaker, Styles calls Scott back and says he thinks he's in an industrial basement with a furnace, though it's freezing. Scott asks Styles why he's whispering. Styles says it's because there's someone in there with him. Ooh, chills. Unaware of what's going on, Kira is in her bedroom. Uh, I love her geek socks. Her lamp unexpectedly goes out, but when she touches the bulb, it lights up again. I like how the non-diegetic music stops suddenly when that happens. It's like the music was playing in her head, and then she was startled, so it stopped. And then how her fingertips glow just before she touches the bulb. Such great details. Yeah. The bulb surges with power and shatters, just in time for Noshiko to come into the room. Noshiko replaces the bulb, and Kira just barely catches sight of electricity running through her mother's fingertips. Noshiko ignores Kira's questioning look and tells her to go to sleep before leaving the room. She didn't pick up the broken glass. I guess she was just like, okay, don't step on that. Seems like a personal problem. Have fun. Clean it up. (laughs) In the original script, Noshiko doesn't replace the bulb, so Kira doesn't get this little hint about her mother. Scott and Isaac arrive at Styles' bedroom, hoping to get a better handle on Styles' scent, and they find Lydia and Aiden there already. Aiden says not to ask because the answer just makes things more confusing. Does it? It's not that hard to understand. She's a banshee who hears things that give her knowledge no one else has. Basically, she's psychic and she heard a psychic thing. She just needs to like print out on a little card and hand it to them. (laughs) It's truly not that complex. Yeah, it's not. There's a bit here about getting Styles' scent in the original scene. Isaac says, we're going to smell his dirty laundry. Scott says, got a better suggestion? Isaac gives him a pained look of surrender as he opens the laundry hamper, but luckily there's nothing inside. Isaac says, no dirty laundry. I think it's interesting that the characters have to get people's scents before they can track them. And by people, I mean people that they're very close with. You would think that they would just get a handle on their scents. Yeah, it's definitely odd when it's someone they are familiar with, like someone who is regularly in their life you know Mm -hmm. like whenever like when they did it with malia 
in the first uh, two episodes of this season. It's like, okay, that that totally makes sense. Yeah, or if it's someone they've sense. never met before, totally got it. But like, I like I get I get why this was cut. But it's also like Scott knows Styles is set. He, he come on, he knows. But they did this with Stalinsky, Melissa, and Chris. Arden, yeah, in three A that they yeah. had to get their sense. And I'm like, Scott's related to Melissa. To be fair. I feel like Scott's the only one out of like, I, I do feel like Isaac wouldn't be familiar with those people's sense because he had been around Melissa more, but at that point, I don't know how he fully like moved in with them. Yeah, I, I don't think he had. My understanding is that smell works for them like sight works for us. Like yeah. once you've got someone's face, like you will remember them, you're familiar with them, you're going to remember them, right? You don't need yeah. to look at a, a reference photo of your best friend's mom to remember what she looks like and my understanding is it's basically the same no i think once they have someone sent they got you know and especially if it's someone they're around an, a, enough time like a lot this scene shouldn't exist scott should never have to get the scent of anyone in his pack or anyone related to the pack it's right. just we we got this we got this only new people we've never met before is it that he's trying to do it for isaac though i guess but honestly even by this point i think isaac should know what style smells like yeah. It's it's just Axe body spray. Just follow that smell. <laughs> they might lead them Rude. to a CVS or a Walmart first. The group notices something different about Styles' room. There's an array of red strings leading from Styles' mystery board to his bed where they're tied to a pair of scissors dug into the mattress. I love that image. Yeah, it's fantastic. The low angle shot at the end of the scene is particularly great. Indeed. Since Styles uses red for unsolved in his mystery board color coding, they guess that Styles must think he's an unsolved case right now. There's a bit here in the original script that I liked but was cut. Scott says, all this stuff, it's about Barrow, where he went, what he did. Ain says, clearly he's obsessed. Lydia says to herself, an idea or thought that continually preoccupies or intrudes on a person's mind. They all look at her. She says, the Oxford Dictionary definition of obsession. Obsession. You're my obsession. Lydia's shocked that Scott isn't planning to call Stolinsky. They need to understand that promises in life-threatening situations really don't mean much. In the original script, Scott explains Styles not wanting to call the sheriff because Styles used to sleepwalk after his mother died. He went missing for a whole night once and his father almost lost it, is what Scott says. Aw. Still. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't change anything. Yeah. From Scott et al.'s perspective, obviously I understand why Styles is saying that, but from their perspective, that's absolutely no reason not to let Stalinsky know and loop yeah. him in. Because it's going to be worse if they find a dead Styles. Exactly. Luckily, Lydia manages to convince Scott to tell Stalinsky about what's going on, though Scott plans to go directly to the sheriff's station instead of calling. Lydia and Aiden stay in Styles' room because Lydia thinks there might be something there they can use. That and we have a painting to finish. Isaac thinks that what's there in Styles' room is just evidence of pure insanity. Not helpful, Isaac. That's what Styles has been saying, guys. Isaac is rarely helpful. In the original script, Isaac is the only one to point out the possible connection to the Oni. Isaac says, do I have to be the one to state the obvious? We all know what could be going on here. They all look at him, unwilling to admit it. Isaac says, I mean, we just learned about some evil spirit that possesses people. 
And those Oni things seemed pretty dead set on killing it. What if Lydia says it's not Styles? Isaac says, how can you be sure he wasn't checked? That's interesting that originally there was a call out to this. Instead, it was removed to keep the surprise right till the very end of, of the reveal and all that. But but that that is I mean, I think that's good on Isaac where he's yeah. like evidence, people. Mm-hmm evidence do you speak it (laughs) but but they actually don't save the reveal for the very end at all because there's still that conversation between Derek and Aiden where Aiden is the one to say no one wants to admit it oh right I forgot about maybe maybe they were just like this needs to come later like it maybe it's too soon it does seem odd though that no one actually brings it up to Scott yeah after the call with Scott, Styles turns on the flashlight on his phone and uses it to look at his leg, which is caught in an animal trap. Ah, rough. Styles moves the beam of light around the room, searching for whoever or whatever else is in there with him. Finally, the light illuminates a figure crouched against the wall. It's so creepy and awesome. Yeah, and Dylan does such an incredible job at the scene. The figure drops a piece of chalk. Only then does Styles notice the symbol drawn on the concrete wall, Japanese kanji for self, the same symbol that marked those whom the Oni had checked. But almost as soon as Styles sees it, the symbol dissolves into white smoke. It looks so good. At the sheriff's station, Stolinski tells his deputy Parrish to put out an APB on the Jeep. He also wants a list of industrial basements and building sublevels. We talk a lot about how great Dylan O'Brien's performance is in this season, and it is great, but Lyndon's really bringing it too. We also have Parrish in the scene, the baby-faced deputy. And I think that's his very first appearance. I think so. It is. He's obviously more built, but he totally gives me skinny Steve vibes. Absolutely. Definitely. Selinski then takes Scott and Isaac into another room and asks if there's more they can tell him that he can't tell the others. Scott explains that Lydia knew Styles was missing. Isaac adds that she's working on figuring out how to help find him. They've also called Derek and Allison. Just as Stalinsky asks whether they can use scent to track Styles, Parrish comes in and says they found the Jeep. They all go to the parking lot of Beacon Hills Memorial Hospital, where the Jeep is dead, meaning Styles might have left the lights on. Oh, I missed that stage. 8400 Balboa. Melissa takes Stalinsky down to the basement to search, but Derek goes to the roof. That's a nice effect shot. Well done, John Gross and friends. When Scott and Isaac join him, Derek says that Styles isn't here at the hospital anymore. I like how Derek is able to clear the entire hospital. Perhaps he's got a really good handle on Styles' heartbeat. He's the only one who knows how to do this shit properly. He knows Styles is probably going to go missing the most, so that's not locked down. You will also note that he doesn't have to refresh his memory on Styles' scent. He does not. Isaac leaves to update Stalinsky that Styles isn't in the building anymore, then to look for Allison, who hasn't answered her phone. Derek teaches Scott about chemo signals, chemical signals that communicate emotion. Even sweat alone can give off anger, fear, disgust. Yeah, it only took us three seasons to learn about that. Sometimes it takes a while for an idea to land. So if this were purely a comedy, I think it'd be really funny if Scott were like, why are you just now telling me this? And then there'd be flashbacks of Derek trying to explain it across the seasons. And every time it zooms in on Scott's face while Blink-182 plays loudly in his head. And then Derek's like, and that's how you use chemo signals. One year later. And that's how you use chemo signals, Scott. That would be great. 
I love that you include that was Blink Nay too. That's a little ode, I feel like, to Posey. Scott takes a deep breath in and says he feels stress and anxiety, Derek adds. He believes Styles was on the roof struggling with himself. Now, also in the original script, we did not get this chemo signal bit. I like that Derek is displaying a little EQ here. That's not something we see from Derek very often. He doesn't seem to discuss or express emotions very well, understandably, but that just makes this scene more interesting because it is a little out of character for Derek to be like, no, it's not just stress. It's an it's anxiety. There's a distinction in these two emotions. And I feel like we need to discuss that to really get into Styles' headspace. Like I'm getting not just as there's stress and anxiety, but there's a sense of inner struggle. Yeah, it's great. At the sheriff's station, Raphael comes in and asks Parrish if there are leads on the sword-wielding maniac who stabbed him. Parrish says no, but they've put posters up. The posters in question depict, one, a cartoon samurai with a kabuto helmet and a katana, and two, Zorro. I love those posters. No, I want them. Parrish informs Raphael that he isn't the highest priority of the night. I really love Parrish's gentle but unambiguous dismissal of Raphael in this scene. He's truly not here for Raphael's shit. As no one should be there for his shit. In the original script, Raphael and Melissa are introduced in this episode with her removing his stitches at the hospital. In Styles' bedroom, Aiden finds one of Lydia's root structure drawings framed, smirking at how much Styles seems to like her. In the original script, Allison is actually the one to come over and stay with Lydia, not Aiden. Lydia paces Styles' room. She goes over to the board and examines all the clippings. Frustrated, she begins to search Styles' drawers for any clue. She becomes more and more frantic, pulling stuff out of the drawers. Allison says, Lydia? Lydia stops and looks up. Lydia says, you scared me. Allison says, what are you doing? Lydia says, what does it look like I'm doing? Trying to find anything that could tell me where Styles is gone. Lydia stares helplessly at Allison and then says, well, don't just stand there. I really, really, really would love to have Allison in those scenes, not Aiden. Nothing against that Carver twin that played him. They're both great. <laughs> but at this point, I was super over Aiden, Lydia, as Lydia seemed to mostly be. <laughs> and I am always here for more female friendship. Yeah. Lydia says Styles might just like the drawing, but the for Lydia tag suggests otherwise. I really like the shot of Lydia and Aiden from under the red strings. Lydia gets a text from Scott updating her that he's with Stolinski while Isaac is looking for Allison and Derek is checking the high school. Aiden plucks one of the strings and Lydia hears voices whispering. I like this idea a lot. Yeah, it's really cool. Aiden's over there being like, she hot, but she crazy. He really is. But it's so stupid because it's worked before. They already know she's not crazy. Yeah, it gets very old for me very fast when characters have seen the impossible but are somehow still skeptical about them. I think Aiden gets frustrated, like how she keeps asking, do you hear that? No, no one else can hear what you hear, Lydia. Imagine how she feels. I mean, she has to ask. What if she were like, oh my God, I hear something. It must be super important. And eventually everyone's like, oh, are you talking about the music? Yeah, we can hear that too. The The radio's on. Did, did you not know that? Like that, that just wouldn't work. She has to confirm that only she's hearing it so that she knows it's her banshee powers and is therefore important to the case at hand. I know. 
I know. And I completely understand that, but he's a shitty person. And from what he was saying, it seems like he gets frustrated with her, even though he generally understands that she's got a supernatural power. It's just not the one he has. So throw that man right into the trash. In the original script, Lydia says she knows why she was left behind and not given somewhere to search. She says, don't think I don't know why they left me here. It's because I'm unreliable. Allison says, you've helped Lydia many times. Lydia responds, whatever I can do, it's random and completely dangerously vague. Allison runs her hands along the red threads as if they are strings on a harp. Lydia turns. It's so much more interesting for it to be a moment between Allison and Lydia as well because their friendship has a long history and a complicated history that has not always been good. Yeah. And... I would have liked more evidence that Allison understands that she did not treat Lydia well for a long time and that she needs to make a concerted effort to be consistently and vocally supportive of Lydia and reinforce you're not crazy. What you can do is real. What you can do is helpful. And we've used it in the past. Yeah. Right. I don't like in this original or in what we see on screen, how Isaac says he's looking for Allison. And it seems like he's doing that for so long. When it's like, she's at the apartment. She's not anywhere else. He was never missing. It's just yeah. like, was he just wanting to get out of searching for like styles or what? Yeah, maybe. Cause that you're right. You'd think that would just be the first place he'd check, but he'd be like, I'm going to go check on Allison at her apartment because it's the middle of the night and that's where she lives. Yeah, there's only need to search for her. She's not there. Right. Weird things like, I search all these other places. Not her house, though. Do you think she could be there? You in, know, in her bed, like in the middle of the night? Is that a weird place for her to be? In Isaac's defense, her phone is off and it has been previously established that building is booby-trapped. So who knows how many times he tried to get into the building? and failed before he finally brute-forced his way in and found Allison asleep. Well, I mean, I know the windows are electrified, but couldn't couldn't he just, like, go knock on the door? I'm confident they haven't made it so that knocking on the door hurts you because they're trying to get their door dashed like everybody else. (laughs) Unless the door's made out of rowan wood, and he is like, hey, I get blown backwards. But, okay, when he finally does get in the house, it doesn't seem like he's... In any distress. I know. I, I'm just, I know, I know. You're just being Will. I'm just being me. Okay, difficult. Playing devil's advocate. The devil doesn't need your help, dude. He's That's got accurate. it. He's good. The voices that Lydia hears are whispering about a house. Lydia follows one of the strings to the mystery board, which has a photo of a local psychiatric institution called Eichenhaus. This is where the shrapnel bomber was committed. Lydia believes Styles must be in the basement of Eichenhaus. Now, in the original script, it was called Lander House, not Eichenhaus. Really? I wonder where that came from. Yeah, I don't even remember that. I do want to say that I'm pretty sure Lander House was a placeholder, because that does not sound interesting. <laughs> I think it's just something they need. we needed to have in an outline. Meanwhile, Styles is trying to get his foot out of the trap when he hears the frightening figure moving around him in the shadows. Styles demands to know who it is. At first, the thing starts speaking in Japanese. Styles says he doesn't understand, and so the figure says in English, not who are you, Styles? Who are we? And Styles says, We are not here for this shit. <laughs> we are not amused. 
The figure says, it's getting cold. It asks, did you notice that we've stopped shivering? Do you know why that's a bad sign? Styles does. His fifth grade science report was on hypothermia. It's the body trying to conserve energy. Speech is starting to thicken. And next comes fatigue, confusion, and eventually death. Styles snaps at the figure to stop saying we. I was also really into like learning about hypothermia around that age. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know if they did like a proper report on it, but I was really into Titanic and reading about people in the water and stuff. Figuring out if doors could really hold two people. Yeah. They can. (laughs) Thank you, Mythbusters. But the figure doesn't stop. It goes on to say that Styles needs to get up so they don't die. When Styles protests he can't because of the steel-jawed trap on his leg, the figure points out that the trap had been on his right leg, but is now on his left. Oh, I love that it gets in a silver tea. I know, they're f- great. Increasingly confused, Styles asks what the thing is doing. It's called mind f- Love a good f***ery. The thing says it's trying to save Styles' life. In the original script, Styles' leg isn't trapped. Things play out very differently, and he even hears others outside of the Nagitsune in the building. Man number two off screen says, I'm not going down there. You can flap your lips all you like. Place is spooky as hell. Styles stares at the two silhouetted figures above. Man number one says, smells like hell. I say we just throw them down. No one will care at this point. A body wrapped in a sheet rolls down the stairs and lands with a thud. A face becomes wedged in the gap in the steps and stares blankly at Styles, a young man, dead. Styles looks up and now sees that the room is filled with bodies wrapped in sheets. They are everywhere. I think that could have been a really fun imagery. Stalinsky and his deputies join Lydia at Eichenhaus. Uh, I love the Eichenhaus location because if you shoot it from the right angle at nighttime, you're like, this is a creepy f- mansion. But when you go there in the daytime, it's like, this is just an apartment building in downtown L.A. I love that. And, you know, it's just you put the camera in the right place at the right time and you get like this incredible image that doesn't otherwise exist. That is cool. At the sheriff's station, Raphael accesses the transcript of Scott and Styles' phone call, just in time for Melissa to arrive at the station looking for him. Her shift is over, so she wants to help with the search. Melissa McCall, always going above and beyond. She should have just called the sheriff. She knows her ex-husband is mostly useless. That's accurate. Maybe she just felt like he already had too much on his plate to give her orders. That could be too. Yeah, Yeah, I could see that. In the original script, there's a scene of Raphael piecing things together before leaving the station. McCall enters the small evidence room. He scans the shelves and stops on what looks like an extermination sprayer. He removes the sprayer and leans in and smells. Jerking back from the pungent smell, he looks up, eyes watering. Lydia, Aiden, Scott, and Stalinsky get into the basement at Eichenhaus, but Styles isn't there, even though the location looks exactly like where we've seen Styles. Ah, the shot of Stalinsky kicking in the door in slow motion is so cool. Totally, totally is. I like action, Slinsky. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Bring back those moral combat moves. Yeah. <laughs> Lydia is confused and upset. She had been so sure, unbeknownst to the group, the symbol that the Oni left on the people they checked, the Japanese kanji for self, is etched into the wall of that basement. It's in a different place, though. Well, it's also etched in the stone instead of in chalk. That's true. In his car, Raphael explains to Melissa his theory that Styles is still asleep, that he's been asleep the whole time and was still asleep, still 
technically sleepwalking when he spoke to Scott on the phone. After all, people have cooked meals and mowed lawns while sleepwalking. As another example, Raphael reminds Melissa that one time he came home drunk and passed out. Melissa reminds him that it wasn't just the one time. So he did have a problem with alcohol. I thought that was the case, but then I was concerned that I might have just been thinking of the on-fire canon. But it's so weird for him to criticize Stolinski for having had an alcohol problem when he did too. I know. Later, Raphael says that he got up to go to the bathroom only to go into the closet and pee in the laundry basket. He thought he was in the bathroom. So, how do they know Styles isn't sleeping and just thinks he's in a basement? Meanwhile, in what might be Styles' dream, the strange figure tells him that this is a riddle. To lead Styles to the truth, he asked Styles a few riddles, including the one Dean told him and Scott, when is a door not a door? When it's ajar. But when it gets to the final riddle, it stumps Styles. Everyone has it, but no one can lose it. Yeah, no one but Peter Pan. That's a hint, y'all. <laughs> This is like a Christopher Nolan version of the Riddler. Yeah. Now, I have the very contra opinion that Christopher Nolan is overrated, Mm. but I'd still want to see the Christopher Nolan version of the Riddler. Yeah, it'd be interesting. And his dead wife. And his dead (laughs) wife. Nice. Yep. Everyone has a dead wife. Or girlfriend. girlfriend. Does everyone have a dead wife? (laughs) The thing then grabs the chain connected to the steel trap and uses it to drag Styles painfully across the floor. But then Styles wakes up and he's not being dragged by a creature. He's being pulled out of the root cellar by Melissa. Now, the scene is very different in the original script. In it, Styles steps over the bodies and climbs the stairs up to the door above. He reaches for the doorknob, but it's boiling hot, scalding his hand. He looks down and smoke billows under the door, a fire. Styles quickly retreats down the stairs as the room fills with smoke. Trapped, he staggers back, hearing the sounds of a burning building above. He looks up, seeing flames through the floorboards. Panicked, he trips over a body and lands face to face with one of the corpses, the young man thrown down the stairs. Slowly, he begins to move, hands thrusting towards Styles. Styles scrambles back against the wall, realizing the floor is covered in maggots. He presses up against the carving of the backwards five kanji. As the young man rises, he's revealed to be dressed in military uniform, a soldier. He looks straight at Styles with eyes filled with silver. The soldier crawls towards him and leans in, Bearing his teeth, a set of metallic fangs. Terrified, Styles pushes back against the wall, causing it to crumble behind him. Over his shoulders, hands burst through, grabbing him. That's all very f- cool. In that draft, also, Styles is in the coyote den, not the root cellar. I was wondering about that because it didn't sound like the root cellar because of, well, I guess the stairs were in his dream either way. Apparently, they had sprayed a repellent in the coyote den when they were like investigating it and that's what had made um Raphael's eyes water so that's why he smells the thing at the station oh that's right oh shit that actually makes way more sense yeah it does Isaac arrives at the Argent apartment and finds that Allison has just been sleeping her phone is turned off but she never turns her phone off even stranger there are voicemails on her phone that sound like they're in Japanese While Derek works on jump-starting the Jeep, Aiden asks if he thinks there's more to Styles' situation than sleepwalking. 
Derek says that in this town, there's always more to it. Okay, okay, but guys, I love how Derek is going to get the deep going for Styles. Aww. He's such a good boyfriend. I mean, friend. Friend. Boy who is a friend. Boy who, who is, is a, a boy. Friend. A friend boy, yes. Bros without hoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have y'all noticed how much we will talk Steric in an episode that literally does not have a single interaction between Styles and Derek? Dude. There was, dude, hey. wait for it. There was a steric seat in the original draft. Shut oh. your mouth. What? What? Well, we'll have to get to it then. All right. Oh, it, girl. <laughs> Aiden tells Derek that he overheard Styles telling Scott that he thinks he's the one who left the message for Barrow. Derek is skeptical. Don't say that, my boyfriend. Why would the Nugget Snape pick him? I, the only reason Styles is alive is because I follow his ass. That's also what Styles says about Derek behind his back. Okay, well, new fake idea. Styles knows that Derek has been following him, so he only goes to super safe places. That way he knows Derek is staying safe. Aw, like coffee shops and bakeries. <laughs> exactly, you get it. <laughs> Derek wonders why the Naked Snake wouldn't have chosen someone more powerful. The idea of someone with more power while holding jumper cables in his hands makes Derek think of someone else in particular. Meanwhile, Raphael explains how he knew where Styles really was. During his phone call with Scott, Styles mentioned there being a strong smell that made his eyes water. That made Raphael think of the animal repellent they used on the coyote den. He couldn't go near it without his eyes watering. Despite Raphael downplaying it, Stalinsky insists on thanking him for helping to save Styles' life. For once, you don't suck, Raphael. Only once, though. Yeah, so it, it is really interesting now knowing that, because I remember thinking when we were watching it, he says he remembered the animal repellent from the coyote den, but they don't say anything about how that led to the root cellar, do they? What I'm thinking is, is the coyote den is very narrow and trying to, I think, stage all the things that we see kind of happening in the root cellar would be more awkward. And I think that's why they chose the root cellar, or all of the rocks we rented to make the animal den were not available. <laughs> so they were on another project. Yeah, they were on um, another project. It is kind of weird that they then didn't add some ADR Context. or something yeah. of like, and there were only a couple locations in the woods where they used a bunch of repellent. And so Melissa and I drove to those locations and found one where Styles was or something. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. To make it not as leapy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you're right. It's a leap. Like all the information we're given makes sense. It's just to get from one to the next is not super simple. It's like you need just one more piece of information and you're like, oh, I, yeah, it makes total sense. Right. So Teen yeah. Wolf. Get Teen your Wolf. On. <laughs> Lydia hears a repetitive clanging sound, but after the failure of her last Banshee power-based prediction, she ignores it and declines to tell Scott about it. The next day at school, Scott texts Deaton, asking if he's got anything yet. Deaton says he's still working on it, whatever it is. Kira tries to get Scott's attention, but Scott is too preoccupied. Derek steps in and asks Kira to show him what happened with Barrow. He's just wandering around there, looking 30 in a high school. It's fine. Uh, I like Kira's shirt with the little motorcycles all over it. Uh, she's just the best. It's because her boyfriend has one. Well, a dirt bike. Close enough. Close enough. Outside Styles' room at the hospital, Melissa struggles to tell Stalinsky about the connection she made. 
between Styles' condition and his late mother's. Stalinsky reveals that he noticed the same similarities. Okay, but I mean, in fairness, impulsivity is just Styles all the time. Like, that's right. not really a symptom. That's a personality trait. <laughs> exactly. In the original script, the scene is different. Stalinsky says, This can't be happening. Melissa responds, there's only one way to know for sure. We do an MRI. Stalinsky says, then do it. Melissa says, I'll tell the doctor to come see you. As Melissa moves to go, Stalinsky reaches out and stops her. He says, I went with Banshee today. This time I'm going with science. Do the MRI. But Styles cannot know why. Not until we know for sure. I'm not sure that that would work at all. You'd be like, Styles, you need to do an MRI for what? Oh, well, you know, just to check. Check for what? Funsies. He's like, first you dose styles, then we put him in the machine. Right? That's the only way that would work. Exactly. Don't worry. No, no, they can get him in there. Melissa's very good at jabbing him when he's not paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) He won't remember. Kira and Derek go to the power substation to walk through what happened with Barrow. So the internet pointed out, I didn't notice this myself, but the internet pointed out that Kira was not wearing a leather jacket when she left the school, but she is wearing one now. So the fan in is that Derek got her a leather jacket on the way to the substation. Uh, Yeah. We need to make one quick stop. He just like pops the trunk. He's like, what size are you? She's like, what? He goes, don't worry <laughs> about it. He just pulls out a leather jacket. He's like, put this on. We got to go. Yeah. It's just his wannabe in my club. Initiation. (laughs) He crosses out Scott, writes Kira on top of it, and hands her a note that says, Will you be in my club? Yes or no? Aww, adorbs. In the original script, Derek actually finds Kira sneaking around the power station. It says, Derek watches as the hooded figure steps toward a fence that reads, Danger, high voltage. Danger, danger. I'm so sorry. Anyway, contain. (laughs) What? What's happening? Contained inside the fence are large, ominous electrical coils. The hooded figure grabs the fence, climbing to the top. Derek steps from the shadows as the figure reaches the top and extends a hand, trying to touch one of the large electrified coils. Derek says, hey, stop. Are you crazy? The figure falters, foot slipping. They fall to the ground. Derek runs up to find Kira on the ground, clutching her wrist. Kira says, I think I broke my wrist. Derek says, what the hell do you think you're doing? Kira says, why did I survive when Barrow electrocuted me? I needed to know if I could do it again. Derek says, and you could have killed yourself. Realizing what he just said, Derek looks down at Styles' bat, beginning to piece together the clues. He turns the bat over and we see two handprints melted into the bat. That's cool imagery. Yeah, I like this scene. I like that Kira's being proactive. And trying to figure out what happened to her. Because, I mean, I like that she's involved in finding styles, but she's not really involved. Like, I mean, there's really nothing that she does, you know. And also, I could kind of see Scott not calling her for this. Because they're still kind of in those early stages of the relationship and all that. So she's not on the text thread yet. So I kind of wish this had stayed. I I like seeing her trying to figure out what happened to herself. Also... I like Derek, yeah, being all protective. You could have killed yourself, young lady. (laughs) I know, I know. And this is pure Derek energy, which is he really wants to help and he really wants to protect someone and make sure they don't get hurt or killed. But he also has no social skills. So instead of being like, oh my God, be careful, you'll hurt yourself. 
It's the Derek way, which is, are you crazy? <laughs> what the hell do you think you're doing? Don't do that, like, idiot. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know Derek, it's like, well, that was rude. You could have just, you know, said something nicer. But that's just Derek, where he's like, why would I say something nicer? Me yelling, are you crazy? Must have been the quickest way to stop you from killing yourself. Like, that is... Yeah. Your Derek energy right there. I love exactly. That. Well, it's like yeah. dealing with a bunch of like toddlers that want to stick like their fingers in a socket. It's like you got to just yell at them and scare them as quickly as possible to again to not do the thing. Yeah. Something that baby styles 100% did, by the way. Oh, probably more than once. More than once. Oh, yeah. Derek and Kira see a metal bat stuck to an electrical container. Derek tells Kira it's Styles' bat. Styles' bat, you guys. This is very important. Derek wants you to know that this isn't just any bat. Yeah, he knows his babe's bat on sight. <laughs> but in the original script, Styles' name was actually scratched into the handle of the bat as well. Well, I really like that it wasn't because I just really enjoyed Derek saying Styles' bat because he knows it on sight and not because there's a super obvious name tag on it. Yeah, I think he does still recognize it. He does like, I think they want to also have like a visual clue. Yeah. Well, I like this better. Yeah, me too. The bat has been magnetized. Magnets, how do they work? Derek turns to Kira and asks her to tell him what she knows about Foxfire. No one would notice if Derek were possessed. Styles would. Okay, even set aside Derek. Styles would be texting Derek about something, possibly something ridiculous like Star Wars, possibly something case related, and Derek would text back something very socially apt. And Styles would be like, nope, nope, nope. That's not the awkward sour wolf I know. Yeah, Styles would be texting him. He'd get an eggplant emoji back. And he's like, yeah, wait a minute. This isn't <laughs> correct. <laughs> oh, but it could be because I feel like he'd come back and be like, you know what that means, right? And Derek would be like, yes. While frantically trying to figure out how to Google what the eggplant emoji means. Because he was just trying to tell Styles that he tried eggplant parmesan for the first time and he thought that that would be a fine moment for it because that's his level of social skill and then the internet would be telling him that it just means dick and he would try to find some sort of way to explain why he used eggplant emoji without admitting that he didn't know what it meant in a social context unless he was possessed in which case styles would quickly ascertain that because he'd be like lol derek did you know what that meant and the person on the other end would be like oh no i've misread their relationship so now i'll just say no. Yeah. And then he Styles would be like, Derek would never just admit openly and easily that he was wrong. It is time to call the cavalry. Styles is just like looking at his phone and the eggplant emoji comes through. And then the next message is, uh, it's really tasty. Have you had it before? And then it's just Styles, <laughs> Styles, Styles. And the camera just finds Styles passed out <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> I personally think Styles was no right way as soon as Derek just responded to a text message. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Isaac and Allison asked Mr. Yukimura to help them translate the Japanese language voicemails left on her phone. Mr. Yukimura tells them the man speaking in the messages is giving instructions to people arriving at a Japanese internment camp called Oak Creek during World War II. Since there was no such internment camp in California, Mr. Yukimura pronounces the voicemails as fakes. In the hallway by the lockers, Scott asks Lydia if she wants to go to the hospital with him to visit Styles after his medical tests. Lydia seems out of sorts and startles every time someone closes their locker. She says she'd better go home, and she'll text Scott later. Scott? Scott? Ask follow-up questions, Scott. Scott, do it! <laughs> At the hospital, a doctor prepares Styles for an MRI. 
Dr. Vandenberg lived. Last time we saw Brandon Boyce, Barrow had stabbed him in the neck. Yeah, you can actually see a scar. That's interesting because I'm sure that happened about three days ago. He heals <laughs> very well for a human. Is he human? Are we sure? It would make more sense if he weren't. Any human would have left Beacon Hills a long time ago due to the number of murders and, you know, getting stabbed in the throat. Solid yes, point. Everyone needs the throat. Styles explains to Scott what it is they're looking for. Signs of frontotemporal dementia, which causes parts of the brain to shrink. It's what Styles' mother had, and it's the only form of dementia that can affect teens. There's no cure. Well, there might be one. It's a gift. Yeah. The whole, like, exchange between Styles and Scott, very, like, deep brotherly moment, is not in the original script. That makes sense, because originally they weren't going to tell Styles what it was for, right? Yeah. Right. Scott says that if Styles has frontotemporal dementia, they'll do something. Scott will do something. Like I said. Go ahead and pick out where you want me to bite you. Derek says the hip is a good idea. That does seem to be the Hale's favorite biting spot. <laughs> also, I'm a little distracted by how gelled Scott and Styles' hair is in this intense moment. It's medical gel. <laughs> it's medical gel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what do you put on pregnant ladies' beds? Yes! yes. <laughs> I was literally doing that motion, so I got explain. Did you see that? <laughs> Styles and Scott hug. Aww, I love seeing Scott be a good friend to Styles. Outside, Derek and Kira arrive at the hospital parking lot, considering Derek's new theory that Barrow used Kira's Foxfire to jumpstart the Nagitsune power inside Styles. Kira elects to wait outside. I love investigative Derek. I agree. There's a sweet bit of Derek taking Kira to the hospital for a hurt wrist in the original script. So he helps her into reception, her arm wrapped in his shirt. They lean to the reception. Derek says, excuse me, she's broken her wrist. Uh, Noshiko says, Kira? And she stands in the waiting area looking very unhappy. Kira says, mom, you got here fast. Noshiko says, who's this? Kira says, Derek, a friend of Scott's. Noshiko says, friend of Scott's? I'll take it from here. Noshiko stares at Derek suspiciously as the nurse guides Kira and Noshiko towards the examination room. But luckily Derek is used to this because he has received almost nothing but looks of suspicion for the entirety of his yeah. time back in Beacon Hills. But like how freaking cute would have been if like he takes her to the ER with like her wrist wrapped up in his shirt. Oh, I cute. love all the things that are happening with Derek in this episode. That interaction with his mother really helped him center himself if you will yeah definitely as styles goes into the mri the doctor tells him not to move for the next 45 minutes to an hour not an easy request of styles oh his face when the doctor says not to move and he stops mid fidget <laughs> Have y'all ever seen one of those machines with the outside casing off as it's spinning? It's insane. I have not. It is worth looking into. Do it. The sound the MRI makes is a clanging noise like a hammer hitting an anvil. The exact sound Lydia has been hearing. She tries to listen to loud music to drown it out. In the original script, Peter approaches Lydia as she's vulnerable from her failure to find styles. The script says, Peter slips in next to Lydia. She stiffens, refusing to look at him. He offers her a hot chocolate, Peter says. Lydia says, no thanks. Peter says, seems like I missed all the excitement. Lydia asks, what do you want, Peter? Peter says, I was concerned about styles. Can't I be concerned? Which is kind of funny because in, wasn't it just one episode ago when he told Derek 
can't I be sentimental? Right. <laughs> He's been, he has to go around that being like, can't I have emotions that are not all strictly negative? And everyone's response seems to be, nah. no, asshole. Yeah, nah, brah. And in keeping with this theme, Lydia says, when have you ever cared about anybody except yourself? Peter says, well, there's you, Lydia. I hear you had a little trouble mustering your abilities tonight. You know, I could help you with that. Lydia says, and how would you do that? Peter says, let's ride the little elephant to the room all the way back to the beginning, shall we? It was my bite that triggered your powers. Mine. Peter turns to her and smiles like such an asshole. Yeah. Waiting at the hospital during Styles' MRI, Derek and Scott talk. Scott recalls the information Derek gave him about chemo signals earlier and reminded Scott of when Derek told him how to use anger to control the shift. The original scene is pretty different in the original script. Scott says, I'm not sure what to hope for. A disease that could kill him or an evil spirit possessing him. Kira asks, why was he in the coyote den? Scott says, I don't know, maybe just a place where he could hide. Kira asks, from what? Derek says, himself. Derek approaches, lifting up the baseball bat, he hands it to Scott and then says, I found it in the power station. It's Styles's. And Scott says, I know it's Styles's, which is a bit <laughs> weirdly defensive. Yeah. Derek twists the bat around, revealing Styles' handprints burnt into the metal. Derek says, I checked. They're his handprints. It's him, Scott. He's the one. Scott says, I don't understand. Derek says, the power station was like one big jumper cable. Barrow needed to jumpstart the Nogitsune's power. Kira says, and he used me? Scott turns the bat over in his hand. Right to Styles. Derek says, I checked. They're his handprints. How does one check? There was a small Derek seat in the original script that I'm bitter we didn't get to see where Styles lies sedated in bed and Derek quietly enters the room holding Styles' baseball bat. He gently picks up Styles' hands and wraps them around the bat. They fit perfectly into the melted imprints. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, interesting. I kind of was just picturing him fitting his own hand over the handprints and being like, oh yeah. That's Styles's hand. <laughs> I like this as, you know, he gently picks up Styles's and just like wraps it around the bat. Loving it, Derek. I'm loving it. <laughs> Derek thinks Scott might have actually taught him more about how to control the shift. Yeah, I'm a great student. Scott wonders whether Derek is back to teaching him. Derek sees it as something closer to sharing trade secrets. Derek tells Scott about his conversation with his mother. She said his family used to protect Beacon Hills. Derek thinks Scott can do that now. Scott adds that Beacon Hills also needs Derek to be there sharing his trade secrets with Scott. He's building up, Scott. You're going to be great at it. It's fine. Probably because he doesn't want to be the one protecting Beacon Hills anymore. And I don't blame him for that. It is a thankless job if Derek's treatment is anything to go by. Yeah. You're going to be so great at it, Scott. You, You got this. I'm just going to back out like Homer Simpson into the bushes in that meme. Yeah. (laughs) Talia must have had the patience of a saint. All this talk of protecting people makes Scott think of what Derek said earlier about Styles struggling to protect others from himself. Scott and Derek go back to the roof because Scott thinks Styles wasn't just struggling in general. He was struggling not to do something specific. Sure enough, Scott finds a bag full of electrical cables hidden on the roof. 
they were likely used to damage a live wire also located on the roof. When the music no longer drowns out the noises that she's hearing, Lydia screams. I love how it goes silent there. Oh, it's so good. Styles' doctor reviews the scans from the MRI and reports that parts of Styles' brain are showing signs of atrophy, which crushes Stolinsky. This played out very differently in the original script. The doctor enlarges the image and the shadow comes into focus. It contains a mass of small, rice-like objects. The doctor says, I've never seen anything like it. Melissa says, looks like rice. As they lean closer to the screen, the rice begins moving. They jerk back. Scott says, with dread, that's not rice. Melissa says, these images aren't supposed to move. Confused, the doctor says, uh, no, an MRI can only take still pictures. Stolinski says, well, what the hell is that? Kira says, looks like maggots. I think we must have been continuing on what we saw with Barrow, how he had live flies inside of his body, and we were going to have, like, live maggots inside Styles' body. You don't like rice? Tell me, Michael. How could a billion Chinese people be wrong? (laughs) (laughs) That's immediately Uh, what I thought of as soon as I read that. Right? (laughs) While the MRI continues, Styles suddenly finds himself in a dreamlike state. There, the creature from the basement prowls around him, asking if he's solved the last riddle yet. If Styles answers correctly, they might consider letting them go. Who? Styles asks. The thing responds that it means everyone who ever meant something to Styles. They're going to destroy all of them one by one. So the dialogue is a little different in the original script. Styles says, Who are you? What do you want? The soldier responds, It's going to ruin their lives. Styles says, Whose lives? The soldier says, All of them, all of your friends. Styles says, What do you want? What are you going to do? And the soldier smiles, saying, Me, not me, you. You're going to kill them. Kill them all. Still cool. As the creature gets louder and more agitated, demanding to know the answer to the riddle, it also unwraps the bandages from its head. The solution comes to Styles. then. Everyone has it, but no one can lose it. What is it? A shadow. That's when the creature finishes unwrapping its bandages to reveal Styles' own face underneath. The other Styles' face, so evil. Is this a bad time to ask Derek for a threesome? My God. This plays out differently in the original script. Styles looks over the MRI and sees himself still lying inside the machine. He makes his way over and pulls the movable bed out to find himself staring back. His doppelganger grabs his arms and sits up. Eyes flick open to reveal they are glazed with silver. Through gritted silver fangs, Void Styles says, What took you so long? Void Styles pulls regular Styles into the MRI, causing it to spark violently. Then, Styles wakes up back in the MRI. At least, it looks like Styles. That little spark. Ugh, love it. And then already the way he moves is different. It's amazing. Yeah, he nailed it. Definitely. At the same time, a power surge rocks the hospital. When Stolinski looks back at the MRI, Styles is nowhere to be found. Gotta put a bell on that kid. How many times on the show does Stolinski end up saying, Where's my son? Yeah, many. On the roof, the damaged live wire is causing an explosion of sparks. Derek and Scott can only look on in horror as the live wire breaks and half of it goes flying. In the original script, Derek tries to save the day, of course. As he scrambles to grab the cable, it slides through his fingers, the electrically charged end getting closer and closer. Finally, it slips between his hands and shocks him. Taking the full brunt of the charge, it knocks him unconscious, causing the table to fall 
to the parking lot below and leaving yet another episode ending with seeming like Derek might be dead. <laughs> Poor Derek. We see Styles putting on his clothes and Nikes. Just do it. The Nagitsune plans to. He encounters Nishiko as she emerges from the elevator. Hamlin Tamita looking like a badass. And sounding like a badass. I love how matter of fact she is in this exchange. Nishiko tells Styles that since he remembers her, he'll know that she won't be deterred just because he's chosen an innocent boy as a host. Styles asks if she's threatening them. The Oni appear, flanking Nishiko. Now she's threatening the Nagitsune. Goddamn right she is. So cool. Styles says they're not really afraid of her fireflies, but Nishiko fires back that if the Oni can't defeat the Nogitsune, she knows someone who will. Outside, her daughter Kira stands frozen as the electrified wire swings right at her. The episode ends there. The episode ends super differently in the original draft. Nishiko bursts into the examination room to find Kira is gone. Off screen, Void Styles says, hello, Nishiko. Nishiko turns to see Styles standing in the doorway. He looks up at her and smiles, a sinister gaze etched across his face. Void Styles says, you look well, older than when we first met. Nishiko steps back, a terrified realization gripping her. She says, let the boy go. Styles steps forward and the door slams behind him, sealing them both in. Void Styles says, I can't, he's mine now. Nishiko grabs the IV stand and in a quick move breaks it free from its stand, turning it into a weapon. Boyd Styles says, did you like how I disposed of your Oni? Nishiko says, I'll make more. I'll make them stronger. Boyd Styles replies, how many more before it kills you? Nishiko says, as many as I can. I'll do whatever I must to destroy you. Boyd Styles says, destroy me, but you created me. Nishiko swiftly attacks him with her metal bar as Styles efficiently and effectively parries her blows. They are both masters at fighting. The door bursts open. Stalinsky shouts, Styles! Styles? As if a glimmer of recognition grips Styles, his face softens as he lowers his hands. He then grits his teeth and knocks his father aside as he runs out of the room. McCall enters to find Stalinsky unconscious on the ground and Nishiko rising from the floor with a bloodied lip. Nishiko says, You're too late. That is extremely different. Wow. Very different. Yeah. All right, Wolfies. That wraps up the beta section for Riddled. And now we're about to dive into spoilers. Not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. All right, Wolfies, now we're going to jump into our interview with Holland Roden, who played Lydia Martin on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Well, Holland, how did Teen Wolf come into your life? Teen Wolf came into my life like any, I guess, normal acting job. So it wasn't offered or or a DM through, you know, the the pre precursor of Instagram at that point, <laughs> I guess, was just Twitter. No, I just auditioned like everybody else. And I had gone out for Allison initially. And I remember being at the particular intersection that I was at was in the Valley, the spaghetti junction of Lancashire Vineland. Mm -hmm. It was that intersection. I'm on the phone with my agent and he said, we have this audition. There's two characters. I said, okay, read the characters to me. And when he read Lydia, I said, why would I ever go out for Lydia? And I think it said off the runways of Milan or something like that. And so I thought, oh, no, 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 I'm going to be the new girl. Like that's definitely more (laughs) my speed. And yeah, I, I went to, I went 
relatively far with with that character. And they said, we really like you. We want to bring you back. They say that all the time. They don't mean it. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was it. And then sure enough, a couple months later, November of 09, yeah, that I first auditioned. And then in January, the very beginning of January, like, okay, well, I think it was maybe in December. It's like, okay, in the new year, we're going to, you have an appointment set up, bring you back for Lydia. And, And that was it. And I thought, okay, how can I switch this girl up? And I had the idea that like, I'll just play her like Tracy Flick from election. Cause that was one of my favorite movies. And, and I guess Jeff had a similar through line for, for her character as well. And liked sort of the, the quirkiness of her and yeah. And that's kind of how it was born. Yeah. Fantastic. Very cool. Did they have you do screen tests with the other actors or were there some people that end up not being cast that you screen tested with? No, no. I ended up just going on tape. And they just cast it off of tape. I don't know what this says about me. Every series regular I have booked has been off of tape. <laughs> so COVID's fine for me. <laughs> job I've booked off. So don't open your mouth, Holland, when you're not acting. Don't go into a room, <laughs> is what I've learned. So it's, yeah, it's very funny. I've heard, I've heard stories of actors who are like, you'll be gab, gab, gabbing in the room forever with the casting director. And then you go in and they're poker faced or, you know, they don't care. And then that's the person that gets the job. It's like, if you ever talk for 45 minutes with the casting director, you're not getting the job. <laughs> like wow. the, the, the running joke. I, I don't think there's <laughs> credence to that, but yeah, it was just off of tape. And then I got a call a week later saying, okay, you're going to be on a plane to Atlanta. Let's go. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. So I, I didn't meet anyone in the cast except for, Tyler Hecklin, I had known before and I knew he got hired and I had seen him. I think it was actually earlier that day or the day before I, had, I saw him at the gym. It's like, Hey, what are you from Atlanta? He's like, Oh, I leave. I think it was like tomorrow or the next day. And then I left him a message like 24 hours later being like, I guess I'm meeting you there. I got hired. Yeah. That's, that's so, so fun. fun. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it, was really weird. it was really weird. Yeah. So we talk about this a lot on the podcast To me, Lydia Martin's character arc is the clearest and one of the strongest on Teen Wolf. How would you compare Lydia at the beginning of the show with Lydia at the end? And what was it like portraying that character over six seasons? I think Lydia is one of those types of girls. And I know this type of girl. I am not this type of girl. But uh, or I guess in most cases, the only time I get sort of like loyal or sort of clenchy, you know, in my personality is when I feel the need to defend one of my friends or myself, like there's like a lack of trust, but I'm always like innocent till proven guilty from, for people in my life. And I think unfortunately Lydia is the opposite that, you know, she's sort of, they're guilty till proven innocent. She had a lot of walls up in the beginning, but that's a common thing that, you know, for various reasons, people have adapted as, as coping mechanisms and personality traits. And I feel like Lydia is definitely one of those people. So I think that arc, thank you for first of all, but yeah, I, I think that the arc for me was just letting those walls come down and being able to trust her friends or people that she then could view as real friends and feel a sense of protection for them. So I think that was internally what I, I sort of developed. And as a new person would come in, her walls would kind of go up again. She wasn't, she did, she would, she did not take to the new, the new folk. <laughs> so you had some great martial arts scenes on Teen Wolf. What was it like getting to work with the stunt team to put those scenes together? I mainly had most of my stunts in season four with Iken, and oh, it was so fun. Scarlett Johansson's my hero, and now Florence Pugh. There's very few little shorties in, in our club. <laughs> <laughs> Shorty and Kirby to be uh, 
the the stunt peeps. And so it's usually like the Laura Croft Tomb Raider types. So I I got really excited <laughs> when that arc came along. And Christine actually broke her back. Oh my my stunt, God. Yeah. There oh. is now, I guess, a pull that now is no longer legal, I think. So they pull the actor X amount of feet and they can pull the stunt person X amount of feet. And, and I think that at least what the actor can be pulled now has been reduced. I think it was 20 or 30 feet for the actor. And now it's less than that. So I got pulled that amount, which was a fun ride. I love fast things. But then unfortunately, when Christine got pushed, she she went all the way down the hall and hit and hit the wall and how she hit with the pads and she did break part of her back. So it's Holy gnarly being, being a stunt person, man. It's it's bizarre. And she, I believe, had stunted me on Lost as well. So uh, it, yeah, shout out to the stunt people. I know that a lot of actors do their own stunts and we like to do as much as we can, but there is very much a department for, for that. And, and yeah, they're always cool people. I feel like they're always, they just have that certain personality that's like down for anything. And they always just act like nothing's a big deal. When it is. <laughs> and, um, so I'm really grateful for the stunt department, but yeah, it was really fun. I did stage combat in high school. Which relationship, romantic or otherwise, would you have liked to see explored more deeply on Teen Wolf? There's only so much room, obviously, with so many characters and worlds that were bouncing around in Beacon Hills, as Will knows. <laughs> Will knows more than I do. I wish there could have been more of Kate Argent. I really liked her energy on screen. I think it would have been more, it would have been a lot of fun if we had delved more into the bizarro idea of, of, Melissa Ponzio and J.R. Ford's characters. Um, that would have been more fun seeing more adult storylines. But again, it's like a it's it's a teen genre show. So I understand that the reasoning behind not being able mm-hmm. to like rabbit hole. And I guess that that is why fan fiction is <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it allows more time and space for for those those storylines. But yeah, I would say I wish there's more Kate Argent. I wish we found out more about Coach. Those are the people that like, I like really light up when they come on screen. And yeah, I'm sure for the for the Stidia fans out there, it would have been nice to see like more of the inner workings of their relationship. On the subject of Stidia, Jeff had mentioned that he initially thought about including a scene at the end of the film in which Lydia pulls out her phone to call Styles. After the end of the film, what do you expect would happen with that relationship? Do you see Styles and Lydia's endgame or just like a high school love? My own personal theory is if there's another movie, I, wa- I want to see between the 15 years and really dive into like a, you know, um, the plot line of, of the, you know, sort of Star Wars style that they go out of order. That would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah, absolutely. We'd get That's to a- see Styles is, you know, st- the meat of Styles and Lydia. When you're a banshee and you have a hunch, it's it's a premonition. So, dream, <laughs> right. you know, and that's that's really hard to leave something before it, it's 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 a ha- it's happened. Yeah, I would like to see the inner workings of their relationship. I do think it it did go, it did go past high school. I believe. Yeah, I think it'd be really fun to see another film that takes place sort of as a prequel to the film that we just yeah, got. Yeah, released. exactly. Yeah, yeah. That would be a lot of fun. Teen Wolf has one of the most passionate fan bases out there. Do you have any fun fan encounters you'd like to share? I understand currency and fan land. It's like the picture, or else it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> From my end, like my favorite part is like when you just taking pictures, you don't get to know people. And my favorite part, my favorite subject in class is history. I love sitting down. And if anyone puts anything in an anecdotal manner and we have such a common ground together, like there's bound to be a really amazing connection. And so I love 
getting to know why people love Team Wolf, what's going on in their life, what's their favorite subject, what, you know, a lot of times they're in these European cities that they're driving four and five, six hours in. So they're from these small towns or these villages. And I just love seeing what their life's about, kind of shooting the shit, (laughs) (laughs) very mundane stuff, but it often diverts into very not mundane stuff. And Teen Wolf really means a lot to them. And and, and finding out why is is what's really important to me, because that is just a mirror onto themselves. And if we can help in any way or be a support system, that's that's a pretty amazing gift. Yeah. Oh, I love that answer. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. That's absolutely also, wonderful. Selfishly, I love all of the drawings and like needle points and pin uh-huh. drawings of my dog Fifal. Oh, I have so many <laughs> on my wall. That is so cute. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, they're so sweet. I, I know. <laughs> it's, it's pretty incredible. I'm like, because that's just that's purely for my benefit. Like, someone's making that not for you know. That's just it's that's beyond kind. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So what was it like returning to the character of Lydia Martin after so long for the movie? It felt really calm for me. I think it was different for every character. Shelly and I did a lot of our press together and she, you know, has a different answer for someone around the same age on screen and off screen. But for Lydia, I would say she just was really settled into her own. She wasn't as persnickety. It's only when like, I think Lydia carries a little bit more of a temper than I do. And so, you know, it's like when someone gets on her nerves, she's, you know, tenses up. But when she goes back home, it's the most comfortable place in the world for her. And so you see it just in all it kind of picks up from the finale of then fast forward to how how relaxed she was at that point and how much they let her guard down to just like when you're in your 30s, you you don't care a fraction of what you did, you know, and when you're 18. So you, you can't be bothered. <laughs> You're more just like excited and calm and and very very centered. Can confirm. Yes, <laughs> I can confirm that. Yeah, exactly. Right. What has it been like working with Jeff Davis? Has he asked for your input on the development of Lydia after all those seasons of the show and the film? We always just kind of fed off of each other and whatever he would bring to the table. I was like, yep, that track's great. It's so funny. Jeff is so well spoken, as 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 well as you know, and. And he has the biggest heart, but he says very few words. When he's interviewed, it's the best. He is, oh my God, his answers like at every Comic-Con always just took me. But yeah, there's always been just like a really strong, at least I feel like there has been, a, just a really strong unspoken love between the between us. And I'm forever indebted to him. He changed my life. And I really love his writing. When he cares about something, man, he can put it on paper. And uh has a real beauty, like a real dance to his writing that I I really enjoy rereading. Do you have a favorite memory from the Teen Wolf set TV show or movie? It's so hard to pick like individual memories because there's so many. I mean, one of my favorite memories is when we got unwrapped after like nine hours of being wrapped and Colton and I had been drinking champagne back in like season two, I think. It was his death. So it was season two. And he was wearing this burgundy track suit that he felt like he looked like Jane Lynch from Glee. (laughs) As he does. And he was like, we're going to get punked. We're going to get punked. They're like, we just need you off for off camera. Can you guys come in? They have to react to Colton dying. And I'm like, we're not going to get punked. We're not that cool. (laughs) And the way that like he had to die and I had to like hold him 
like was it it was like Romy Michelle's like interpretive dance like it just like, <laughs> and then Russell had this like soundtrack being like you're dying you're dying you're dead <laughs> oh my god Sharma was in that group Crystal Reed was in that group I think Posey was in that group and I think Dylan O'Brien was in I think was in that group that had to react to that <laughs> and so it's a testament to them. And Colt and I are just dying laughing. We're just shaking. So we're trying not to throw our heads. And we're like, what is happening? It's crazy. <laughs> it was one of the most like bizarre nights on Teen Wolf. I also remember the last night of the show with Posey in the parking lot. Oh gosh, I remember booking the pilot and getting on the plane and and art the art more. And I remember what the hotel room looked like. I remember like downstairs, you could like order these like personal pizzas that were like I'm pretty sure picked up at the 7-Eleven and they were starting. <laughs> like you know, you remember all those like bizarre details. So yeah, I, I there's just so many memories, too many to count. I loved seeing the production office before every season and walking through and seeing all the pictures on the walls and, and what they had planned and snooping is my favorite. <laughs> Multiple people have commented on all the pictures in the art department and, and it just being everywhere. Cause it's just like the art was so beautiful, you know, from our concept art and, and the stuff that, you know, that Tom and, 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 and Rusty did that's just all on the walls and everybody just walks through and it's this wonderful journey. Like, look at all these, Look at all this artwork for this amazing show that we get to make. And then, oh, look, here's a here's a scale model of a forest we want to build. And <laughs> and sadly never did. But uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful seeing all that. But you're not the first person to mention the art and everything on the walls. It was it was wonderful, especially after the fans sent all the portraits, you know, that was like the, the mm -hmm. portrait of every single character. And then they all got put up in the uh, like is in the entrance to the production those? as far as i know i believe yeah jeff is so sentimental he like doesn't necessarily show it but man you can feel like his energy and he's he's such a sentimental guy and he cares so much so much mm -hmm. he's not yes. there to like put, yeah he, he is the antithesis of phoning it in isn't that the truth this isn't a question i just need to gush for a moment about how much Lost means to me personally. And I'm so happy that you were on Lost for oh, an episode. Terry O'Quinn is one of my favorite actors. And he played John Locke, like the philosopher John Locke. Mm -hmm. And that was also my favorite show. And I would turn off all the lights and I would get so into it. I couldn't watch with anybody. And um, that was my, I think I've been acting like less than a year. And I remember going into, I believe it was April Webster's office. And I was just, oh gosh, the seriousness that I like took that audition. And I got to the thing and I was like, oh, rock on the block. And, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, they wouldn't tell you who the character, who you really, it was, you know, they were dummy sides. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I did the audition and April was really sweet. And she goes, well, you might be going to Hawaii. And I was like, oh, okay. And so that was <laughs> to say that I remember people being like well who who are you, you know what are you doing and I I am not a liar but I full-on lied and was like <laughs> it's John Locke They're like really I'm like yeah it's John like I was determined to be part of his storyline <laughs> and thank god it was because I full like I am not even I don't know what it just like came out of my mouth I'm like oh this is what lying is like people just keep doing this <laughs> Like that urge I had, they must have all the time. That sucks. Like it's really hard not to lie when you get that urge to lie. <laughs> and um, 
I had not experienced, like that was not an urge, thankfully, like I don't live with. And no, I did. I was like, oh my God, Holland, what have you said? Like, what are you doing? Telling people, like, they're going to see that and you're not part of John Locke's storyline. Thank God I was. <laughs> and um, I didn't know it until I almost got to like Honolulu. I think they sent it like the day I got on the plane. So wow. I, didn't, I didn't know. And um, I sat next to Nestor Carbonell and yeah. Richard from Leia. Awesome. And what a nice guy, man. What a nice guy. And truly natural eyeliner. That is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a funny guy. He was so lovely. Oh, what a nice guy. And just so welcoming. And yeah, that's I got to see I got to see like a hint of their writer's room. And don't meet your heroes though, because the others' houses were just doors and you open them up and there's nothing behind there. But yeah, it was really fun. There's things I wish I could have done differently with my performance, I think. I've been acting, I think it was eight months when I had booked that job. And so it was just things I wish I would have done differently. But at the same time, I was really happy um, that I got to be part of the John Locke storyline. I was, you know, to play the young Swoozy Kurtz was- I was was, about to say, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty epic for for us redheads. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) The underdogs of the world. Yes. <laughs> what was your favorite scene to film in Teen Wolf, the show? Now that I'm going back and watching season one right now, there was just so many fun scenes. Like the mountain lion scene with Styles was fun. And, <laughs> and you know, the key with Jackson or um, just even the like the, the dumb bowling scene. I mean, the way I say dumb, like the way that Colt and I like came across in that scene, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, like, <laughs> we do this like head thing that like what happened at the same time. It was just like little moments like that. I love how Dylan O'Brien comes into the, to the show and he falls, you know, on the rafter thing. Like, you know, that was like one of the more iconic beginning intros of a character. I think that's a pretty iconic way to enter a scene. So yeah, just it's moments like that. So many. Um, and I also I loved the cinematography with how darkly the how they lit the forest and and um a lot of those shots were really cool. Your credit is Peppermint Patty in the Funnier Die Charlie Brown short with the rest of the Teen Wolf cast and Rachel Bloom. I love yeah. it. It's fantastic. Rachel Bloom was in that. Oh my god. <laughs> so right. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, what a talent, man. Yeah. How did that come about and what was filming like? I don't even remember how that came about. I have no idea. I think it went through our agents. I think. I remember us all being like, hey, you doing it, you do it, you do it, you know. And that, yeah, that was it. I was a fan of Funny or Die. So I was really nervous. But then my part was pretty transitional anyway, from what I remember. So I was like, eh, we're good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it was cool to like see how a, a sketch group works on that level. It's it's really funny. And <laughs> I watched it just because I liked Teen Wolf and so many of like the Teen Wolf cast were in it. And I had no idea who Rachel Bloom was. And then subsequently became a huge fan of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And then I was like, oh my God, that's the same woman. That's the same comedian. I mean, my God, what a what an inspiration to, to write that show. I didn't realize. I was like, oh my God, you're right, Rachel Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like unlocking a portal in your brain. <laughs> you're like, whoa. <laughs> Nuts. So with Lore, Channel Zero, and Follow Me, and other projects, you've taken quite the plunge into horror. Are you a fan of the horror genre? And do you have a favorite horror film? I'm not big into horror, actually. 
I love documentaries, <laughs> love, love, love it. And I've moved pretty heavily into YouTube. That's usually what I watch is a lot of building things on YouTube. It is my favorite thing. DIY, building cabins, building rigs. I will put like white noise organization stuff in the background, mm. you know, sort of like simplistic ways to live your life kind of thing, simplifying your life or mindfulness. Those are the off-grid channels. That's mainly what I like to watch. So that's what I watch mostly right now. I think of horror, I just think of my current, you know, like what I do for a living, so to speak, um, not necessarily what I consume. I would get way too scared if I watched a horror movie. I live way too, <laughs> way too much time by myself and way too much time out in the desert or in forests or in grizzly territory. I, no, I, I don't watch too, true crime. So when I say documentaries, it's not, it's not nothing to do with scary stuff. So, and no podcasts about scary stuff either. So I, I follow through, <laughs> but I would say I love where horror is right now. I think it's what a fun transition to where horror is. Like what Mia Goth is doing is really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and taking, you know, Luca Gennino just did a movie that's taking these like portrait pieces and making it a horror. And even what, you know, like M. Night Shyamalan did with The Village. Like, I really love that genre of horror. It would probably be my favorite kind of horror. It's like what you don't see or really being able to empathize with the protagonist who is, you know, not a not a benevolent person. I say I don't like horror, but I do like, uh, how do you pronounce her last name? Julie DeCarnot with like Raw and Titan. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorite okay. kind of movies. But those aren't really scary to me as they are artistically driven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But so I, I guess I do watch horror if, if you if you count those. Um, I do. Those are two of my favorite movies. Okay. Nice. I love that she comes out with me like every seven years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're credited as a producer on an upcoming horror movie. How did that role come about? My manager found the script and Lawrence is an incredible writer. And I was really attracted to his deck as well and just hit it off with the producers. And it was early enough in the development that they they asked if I did want to come on board as a producer. And the gem of a human that we were able to find through my agent, Josh Finn, and, and my manager, Jason Ellis, we found um, Kyle Gallner. And I joke that he's like my TV husband because I just, I think he's a lot of women's TV husband because the amount that he gives as a partner in a scene, there's so much trust there and there's so much professionalism there at the same time. He he is a gem of a human. What a guy. I'm just, And I love his family and I love his wife and kids. And I got to go out to Vermont and visit his whole family before we started filming. Yeah, I just really wanted to meet because it was such an in, intense process. And I, yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to have connections to the whole family. I thought that was important. And we were going to steal them for two months. So it's only, <laughs> you know. What was your favorite scene to film in the Teen Wolf movie? The most fun we think we had was when it was um, Tyler Posey, J.R. Bourne, Colton, and I in McCall's kitchen. And Colton just saunters in. Jackson's just back. I don't want to admit that I was the one that asked him to come back. I knew Colton was going to be the comic relief in addition to Shelly in the movie. But I had no idea I was going to get somehow suckered into being the buddy comedy with with (laughs) That was a surprise for me, watching it back. And having a fun chuckle of just moments that I didn't realize did get transferred to the screen. So <laughs> I had no idea. News to me. <laughs> so, 
full on Jennifer Coolidge that one. I was just like, where am I? What's happening? I was like, <laughs> I, was like I didn't know. Well, they were rolling that part, were they? Oh, just full surprises. I was I was loving it. Watching it back was was really fun to see to see Colt and I scenes. It's really funny to see those scenes given some of the scenes you talked about on the show like at the end of season two that relationship is so intense and serious and then cut to the movie and it's it's truly like a buddy cop comedy (laughs) and there's just all this quick banter back and forth and light annoyance but really great on screen chemistry and it was just really fun there was some I guess comments that were like oh I don't know is that realistic I'm like well my grandmother, who was just a renegade of a woman, um, my mom's mom, she was just wild in a lot of ways and and really unconventional in a lot of ways for, for her time. And she married a guy that ended up being gay and they got divorced in the 1920s or 1930s and uh, and then became friends. Not unlike, you know, a good old Lydia and Jackson uh, <laughs> homage to my grandma. Little did Jeff know he didn't know that, but <laughs> but yeah, that's that was that was fun. Lydia had some incredible outfits throughout the course of the show and in the movie. Do you have a favorite? And did you ever talk with Barbara to decide on the wardrobe for the character? I don't think I've ever said this, but yeah, Barbara definitely spoiled me because I realized in other jobs I've worked, we would go, "Oh, how long does this play for?" oh, it's only a scene. Okay, let's put it, you know, it's at a desk. We will look at the context of the scene and go, okay, if it's just the shirt, but the bottom looks weird, we'll just use it for that outfit where you're only going to see half of me, most likely with that blocking. And other jobs, they just try on the outfits on you and then they pick where everything goes. Aside from like, oh, you'll be running a lot. Let's put you in flats or something like that on other jobs. This was the one that I got to work the closest with. And I don't know if that's a testament to Barbara because I assume that is. But it was nice to to be able to work with her. And we kind of think logistically what outfits, you know, could work. Like the, our favorites would play the longest. But I didn't really have a favorite. I, I, I liked my wedges, these like beige wedges, because I could run in them pretty easily. They were still <laughs> tall enough because we have a very tall cast on Teen Wolf. Myself and Arden were the only shorties. <laughs> Everyone else was like 5'8 and above. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. We had a, a great talk with Barbara back on season one, and she talked about your the heels that you ran around in and how you were doing that long before Bryce Dallas Howard was being chased by. <laughs> we're a shorties brigade over here. So <laughs> that's definitely that's it's, I, it's iconic to us. I'm five one. Oh, there you I'm go. <laughs> you yeah, guys get it. I, yeah, I'm five four on a good day. I'm like a hair under five four. So I say I'm five four. And Colton likes to give me a hard time. He's like, no, that means you're 5'3". I was like, I'm 5'4". <laughs> <laughs> that steps to a life. Yes. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So you mentioned that you'd be really interested in seeing kind of a prequel film that was set before the events of the movie, but after the events of the show. If there are more Teen Wolf movies after the first one, what else would you like to see them explore? Like what kind of stuff would you like to see them get into? It would be fun to explore, like I was saying, the prequel of of you know these the gap between the 15 years of the show and and this this period of their lives, just to get more into like the character of their, you know, more into character and more into what their everyday life was looking like. And how would they intersect that way? I, I'm sure it would start with with Scott and how we would be able to inter- intertwine our lives. That would be fun to see. Yes, it would. Yeah. I've heard that Tyler Posey wrote a draft of a script for the next film. Do you know anything about that? 
I heard about it, but I have no idea the details of it. So I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm in the dark on this one. Yeah. Uh, Vince Mattis brought it up when we talked to him and Aww. he was very cagey. He was very cagey about it. He's like, I don't know why we talk about this. He was. He was. Yeah, we don't he know. He was like, what if they make it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope they make it too. I mean, yeah. I have no idea what's planned. I'm really proud of Tyler for shepherding this show and taking it to heart for the position that he is on the show. Great number one. Yeah, and oh, Vince Mattis. How good was he in the movie, guys? Very oh. good. So he excited. Great. Yeah, I loved his Very character. Good. Yeah, he was a, a wonderful addition to the universe and uh, definitely want to see more. Yes. Oh, it was so exciting. I was like, oh my gosh, I have so many things I would I would want to cast him in. Are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about? I have one project coming out in the fall. They wouldn't even let us take pictures. Of, so I don't know what we can say, but I think I can say there were, I think there was 37 series regulars in this show. Um, oh so it was, oh my God. Yeah. Are you on and Game of Thrones? That was a lot of fun. Um, and working for this particular creator who was cook for us on the weekends. And um, she was like an Italian mama. She was just... <laughs> A really lovely human, like the Arancinas she made from scratch. And wow. it was pretty fun. Yeah. And um, the care that she put into her show as well, in front of and behind the camera. And a lot of people were sort of similar aged. And the guy who plays my father and my mother, I was really excited to work with. And so, yeah, it was just something very unexpected. And I got to work with an animal that I was really excited to work with. Nice. But they don't let us say anything. So. <laughs> All right. Um, but that was really fun. I'm excited about that coming out. Well, that's fantastic. And Holland, it was absolutely wonderful getting to talk to you and to take this this stroll yes. down memory lane yes, for a show so we all love. No worries. Congrats, guys. This is so fun. I love that you guys are doing this. Thank you. Thank we you. love that you're doing it, too. Yeah, so I can't wonderful. wait to hear more episodes of yours. Just, yeah. I mean, Teen Wolf is is the gift that keeps giving, and, and uh, it's nice that we get to honor it. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. Have a good day. All right. Bye. 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 We had a great time talking with Holland, but now it's back to spoilers. I'm definitely seeing, especially more so in the original drafts of the scripts, a lot of lead up to Raphael has something important he needs to talk to Scott about. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what that thing is. Do you guys? Is it not about the the incident? Yeah, it's about the it's incident Scott? that led to the the scar on his face. Yeah. It, and is that all that is? It kind of just. Yeah. It should have been bigger than that. But also, I guess, like, part of like what we do is I remember Raphael tells Scott about it and he's totally expecting, I think, Scott to kind of blow up on him or to be like crushed and all this. But Scott is kind of like, yeah. And then that little, that mark right there on the floor, that was when I fell down and like broke my nose or this and that he points out all these things that Raphael has missed and it's kind of the the point ends up being that Scott moved on <laughs> that this thing that was super important and, and important but you know because Raphael left it was kind of like one of the last things that happened before he left and Scott's like well that wasn't one of the last things that happened to me you know it's the last thing that happened to you because you haven't had much to do in my life I still wanted it to be his broken jaw I still think that would have been yeah. fantastic because Posey has a handsome, unique face. And yes. to be like, that's the thing. It's like I fell down the steps and broke my jaw as a child. And it's that's why I had this handsome slope to my face instead of this little baby scar. I figured it was like the scar. It's just like, but it comes down to it. That's such a 
small, very small moment in mm-hmm. such a big season. Yeah. That it just seems like, I don't know, a lot of build up to not a lot. In fairness, the final versions of the episodes don't have that big of a buildup. True. Because there's really just the one conversation with Melissa in the previous episode saying, you know why I came back and I need to have this conversation with Scott. We don't really get a lot else in terms of buildup that I recall in 3B. So maybe it's a good thing that those things were cut because they would have set up more of an expectation for it to be this explosive reveal instead of the point which was Scott being like yeah but the big issue that I have with you is not that this happened it's that you left after instead of owning your mistake and being a father we also get Styles' thing though that's true I actually think that what was Styles' thing uh basically he knew why Raphael hated his father is because he knew a secret about him and Styles knows that secret too right oh right yeah 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 I think the biggest problem there is that they never make that I recall they never make an explicit link between that piece of dialogue and the conversation that takes place between Raphael and Scott Mm. Yeah. Like, there's no point where Raphael's like, and everybody knows about it, too. And I knew that everyone would be so disappointed in me and think that I was just this negative force in your life, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But that doesn't really happen, which is why at the time when we got to that point in the episode, I was like, can you guys remind me what this is even about? Because they don't draw that explicit connection. And I understand being subtle and not wanting to beat the audience over the head with it. I do. And in particular, to Calissa's point, I understand not wanting to build it up too much when it's not going to be this big explosive reveal in a season that has a few of those in its own right. But the story of Styles and then Nogitsune sort of melding in his mind is a core part of the story. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted that connection to come back. Yeah. That Styles knew something, therefore the Nogitsune knew it. Yeah. I don't remember specifically because it's been 20 years since I worked on this show, specifically this season. All right. Well, you know, it's been a while, (laughs) but I feel like when Styles says that thing to McCall, he's like, I know what you did and all that. We might not have actually known what the thing was yet. And, okay, uh, so here's an assertion that I would like to make. I understand that TV is a fast-paced environment, but writing a character saying, I, yeah, my father I, knows yeah. a secret mm-hmm. about you and so do I, without knowing what that secret is going to be, is like a lawyer asking a question in court and not knowing what the answer is going to be. I, I agree 100%. I would just say that in TV, you can't always do that. But when this uh, character says something like that, the thing has to be big. A, yeah. a thing like you killed someone when you were drunk type of thing like you a, a thing not just this thing that's important to you and your kids already gotten over because then it's like oh, that's not important <laughs> i mean it's important but not as important as a character making that type of statement or or on a mystery show someone saying mysterious words like that i just feel like figure out what the secret is i don't <laughs> Yeah. But especially if it's not going to be connected to the Nogitsune plot. Like, it's one thing if it's like, I know your secret, and it's going to have to be a secret to do with the Nogitsune, and the Nogitsune storyline is still in flux. That yeah. I would understand. But the writers had to know that it wasn't going to be to do with that, right? That it only had to do with Scott and Raphael's relationship. So at that point, 
pick something. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I agree. You know what would have been interesting Mm -hmm. is if going off of what you said about I killed someone when I was drunk, Mm -hmm. if he had driven drunk with Scott in the car and he killed someone and Scott was there and he was maybe too little to understand exactly what happened. Yeah. But it had this sort of imprint in his head. Yeah. And so when they have this conversation, Raphael thinks Scott's reaction is going to be freaking out. You're a horrible person. You're a horrible father. And maybe there are some undertones of that. But for Scott, it's making him realize why some part of him always wanted to be a hero and protect people. Yeah. Because he saw someone be reckless with other people's safety. Yeah. And it was just seared in his brain and he wanted to do anything he could not to turn out like that. And he hasn't turned out like that. And Raphael doesn't get any credit for that fact. Yeah. Because he was not there. I will say like, because the whole thing is he was drunk when the incident happened, right? Yeah. I feel like the scene with him and Melissa is very flippant about his drinking in this episode. Where he's like, oh, remember that? When I got drunk and like peed in the closet and she's like, well, which time you got drunk? And I feel like that conversation feels very light. For, oh, yeah. Yeah. Her response for, shouldn't have been as light. Well, I feel like he's treating it lightly, too. For if he's like come back to like own up to his mistakes and everything. Yeah. I feel like they're both keeping it like it's just kind of like it sounds more like a fun, like, you know, college story. Yeah. Not like this is a very serious Jack Torrance situation here. Not yeah. to mention that he did make a big deal out of Stalinsky's drinking. Right. Even though Stalinsky, A, had just lost his wife. Yeah. And B, never hurt his child over it. Yeah. So big man's got some big f- words about someone else's drinking habits when he had much worse drinking habits that actually hurt people. So thank you for coming to this bonus episode about... Uh, Raphael's drinking and the secret he holds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I always forget the introduction of Parrish happens in this episode. It's very yeah. nonchalant. I was literally just about to say those words. It's not like how we introduce most new characters where it's like a moment. And this one is just, hey, there's a face. <laughs> we haven't seen that face before. I like how the Nogitsune is writing with chalk in this episode because it's sort of an oblique reference to the Nogitsune being the one responsible for writing the atomic symbols on the chalkboard and galvanize. Yeah, I didn't think about that connection, but that's really cool. Yeah, me either. So I looked it up and when the Nogitsune speaks to Styles in Japanese, it says, I am not alone. And then it says, this is about us. Now I'm not sure how accurate it is, how accurate it is, but... Google Translate's version of the last thing the Nogitsune says to Styles in Japanese in this episode is, everyone has it, but no one can afford to lose it. The can't afford to part is interesting. Yeah, yes, that is interesting. Uh, I also love the way Aaron moves and walks and carries himself as the Nogitsune. It's so interesting seeing him later as Brunsky too, and he's just some dude. Yeah. The Nogitsune's role in this situation is interesting to me too it's trying to save styles's life which makes sense because it can't use styles if styles is dead that makes me think the nogitsune didn't want styles out in the elements where he could die before he served his use so do you guys think the sleepwalking is still the result of the ritual and not the nogitsune in other words is the nogitsune trying to save styles 
from the effects of the ritual. That's a really interesting idea. That is. Yeah, that's so I I think based on, you know, the Nigitsune saying I'm trying to save us and like what we see, I think the, the ritual is still affecting styles and then Nogitsune is like, oh, damn it. Uh, right. I was doing something else. I got to deal with this bullshit. <laughs> right, because I feel like it doesn't make sense for the Nogitsune to send styles out yeah. like this. I mean, yes, it does want to cause chaos and worry all his loved ones and stuff, but I just feel like it wouldn't intentionally put styles into a situation where styles could die. And he's making a point about you're hypothermic, you could die. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't want that, right? Nope. It, it it wants other people to die. Yes. But it certainly doesn't want Styles to die, at least at this point in the story, because it hasn't even gotten to do anything good with him yet. Yeah. Also, I like the idea that Styles's consciousness was at Eichenhaus, because that's where the Nogitsune is. Yeah, because he is he's in the wall. So right. He's he's right, right. there. So that that is interesting that the Nogitsune is like pulling his consciousness to this place while his body is off somewhere else. That's that's fun. So on the subject of like brain stuff, why is it that Styles' brain shows signs of atrophy in the scan? I think it's the Nogitsune making Styles and his loved ones think that Styles is dying. To me, this is way more interesting than the maggots thing. Yeah. Like the maggots thing feels like more of a, a horror movie gimme. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. a still yeah. photo isn't supposed to move, but this one is. And, yeah. and oh my God, it's maggots because maggots are in dead bodies. You know, just yeah. kind of kind of surfacey, generic, rinse, repeat horror movie stuff. This is so much more interesting because it's a real fear. This is essentially psychological torture and not just for Styles. My personal theory is that the reason that Nogitsune chose Styles is because Styles is loved. Oh, no one can hurt you like someone you love. Yeah, I think your explanation is the best one. It makes sense. You know, you got to make it hurt. Speaking of which, this episode had our very first glimpse of Void Styles. At least now Styles knows how hot he'd look while evil. This is one of Calissa's theses for this season. Styles is hotter evil. There was a big Lydia Peter subplot that was cut. Good. Yeah, clearly. Fuck off, Peter. (laughs) First scene after they leave the hospital says, Lydia stands in the center of a room as Peter circles her. Peter says, I couldn't be sure, but the reason I gave you the bite was that I suspected you might have abilities. Lydia says, you sure it wasn't just the desperate move of a desperate man? Peter says, you had something special. There's a way about you people, an essence. You see, I've met a banshee before. Lydia says, and? Peter lifts a tuning fork from the table and strums it on the metal surface. A soft hum echoes out. The things you hear are pure, like the sound from this tuning fork, but so often the sounds are elusive and faint. Lydia nods as Peter lifts the tuning fork to a small hollow wooden rectangle rectangle box that amplifies the sound. Peter continues, what you're searching for is a resonator. You think the scream is what focuses your abilities, right? Lydia says, it's worked sometimes and others not. Peter says, it's not the scream, Lydia. You are the resonator unreliable as it is you have to learn to listen correctly now tell me what do you hear in this room Lydia tries to focus on the silence Lydia says nothing Peter says listen to the sounds beneath the silence the whispers of death Lydia focuses again and then looks over the table where the wooden box containing Talia's closet Lydia says what's in the box Peter says we have Paltrow's head (laughs) (laughs) I I knew that was coming Peter smiles I thought you'd never ask he says 
So I really like her line about, was it just the desperate move of a desperate man? And I also think it's really interesting, the idea that Peter's met a Banshee before. That sets up what we have in the whole storyline with the benefactor. Yeah. I'm assuming that he did, that's who he was talking about. Yeah. And I guess this is the scene where we get the title from. Well, for one thing, I'm glad that there wasn't a bunch of Peter Lydia shit in this episode because I, for one, firmly believe that Lydia should have gloriously murdered Peter. And I mean, perma murder, not some temporary shit like between season one and season two. And it's just really frustrating that that doesn't happen, that the show is just kind of like, well, I guess he's here now and he's not totally a villain, maybe, which he absolutely is. But it just feels like the show didn't take what Peter did to Lydia as seriously as it should have done. Right. Yeah, I get that. I do like how this the rest of this plays out, though. So I'll go ahead and continue on. Peter says, my sister's claws. She used them to take a memory from me a long time ago, and I want it back. He tipped the claws into his hands. These are my gift to you. Call them a very powerful tuning fork so that you can discover how resonant you really are. Once you feel it, find it, know it, you'll be able to return to it whenever you wish. Peter extends his hand as if laying down a gauntlet. It's a simple offer, Lydia. Learn what you must by getting me the memory that I need. Lydia attentively scoops up the claws, accepting his offer. He says, now throw them. Throw them hard. Lydia throws the claws at the wall, and one by one, they embed themselves into the bricks like lethal darts, each one vibrating powerfully. Lydia approaches, closing her eyes as she is bathed in a wave of vibrations rippling off the nails. Everything goes quiet and slows as she listens intently. He says, well, what'd you hear? Lydia smiles. You're more than an uncle. You're a father. Peter stares, confused, unprepared for this curveball. Boy or girl, he asks. That I don't know. Peter flips off the table in a burst of true anger. His eyes glow. Peter says, that bitch took a child from me. My patience is thin, Lydia. Tell me its name. Lydia stands firm and doesn't flinch. Lydia says, I don't know. Peter says, you're lying. Lydia steps towards Peter. She says, Talia knew what you are. A corrupter, a sociopath who has no business being anywhere near a child. As she leans into him, his clawed hands reaches up and grasp her neck. He says, enough with this quaint character analysis. Tell me its name. Lydia says, I can't tell you what I don't know. Peter says, then try again. He turns her head towards the wall where Talia's nails are embedded. Aiden enters and says, get off her. Peter looks up to see Allison and Aiden standing in the doorway. Peter says, we were just having a little chat. Allison says, chat's over. Lydia ties herself and then leans into Peter's ear. You got inside my head once. Now I'm inside yours. Think of all the things a girl can learn. Lydia walks towards her friends. He calls after her. Lydia, Lydia. As she exits the loft, Lydia smiles to herself. She won. You're right. That's sick. <laughs> right? That's great. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole, like, you got inside my head once. Now I'm inside yours. Think of all the things a girl can learn. Oh, yeah. man. No, that's that good. is so aces. Starts off clearly with himself thinking he's in control and then ends with Lydia being like, you, I'm in control. Ooh. So, so good. fucking good. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. 
Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 19, Lotharia Volpina. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.